Welcome back to the DudeCast. My name is Garrett Carlson. I'm super excited about this week's episode, but I wanted to make a note to listeners that signups have opened up for the Dude Alliance. Male loneliness is an epidemic, and there's only one solution, closer male friendships. That's what the Dude Alliance is all about. It's a community of like-minded men who are ready to take the next step in building deeper relationships with themselves and others. We've got weekly live group meetings, daily meditations, and a whole bunch of other things that I'm super excited to share with you. Just make sure you sign up for the waitlist so you'll be the first to know when everything launches. Now, let's do this. About a year ago, I started researching everything I could about masculinity. There's a ton of information out there, but if there's one man, one dude who's been studying this stuff for 40 years, his name is Dr. Ronald Levant. There's no one who has done more work for helping men break past the ideals of masculinity. He and his co-author, Shanna Pryor, released their latest book, The Tough Standard, The Hard Truths About Masculinity and Violence, a couple weeks ago, and Levant was nice enough to sit down and chat about the book with me, as well as go through his fascinating journey through studying all things masculinity. Hope you enjoy. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Garrett Carlson, and sitting sort of virtually alongside me today is Dr. Ronald Levant. How are you today? Very well, Garrett. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I am super honored to to have Dr. Levant on today's podcast because he is sort of, when you look up and Google information or research on masculinity and men, he is the person Uh Look, just looking at his bio, it is just sort of list after list after list of being one of the first people to really seemingly take a look at the psychology of men and masculinity. Um, so for my first question, I, I just want to ask, where did you or what inspired you to start looking into men and masculinity? Well, there's a long story to it. Do you want me to go into it or? Try to find a short version. Uh, you know what? Either version is fine. All right. Okay, so we have to go back um, a few decades to um, sort of the beginning of my career uh, in the 70s. I got my doctorate in 73, did my postdoc training, which required to be licensed as a psychologist. And then got a, my first academic job at Boston University as an assistant professor of counseling psych. And at the same time, I was a divorced, uh, semi-custodial father of a pre-teenage daughter. And uh, I would have my daughter uh, with me all summer, and then I would visit her on the weekends in New York City. And I was, you know, really uh, felt I was totally inadequate as a father. Um, but like, you know, that most men, and I was raised as, in a, you know, as a traditional man in a working class home, a working class neighborhood. You know, I didn't admit that there was a problem. I just sucked it up and kept on going until 1979. When I saw the movie Kramer versus Kramer. Are you familiar with that movie? I am not. It uh, starred Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep, and it was very topical for the 70s because it was about a marital breakup, and uh, uh, the Mrs. Kramer, played by Meryl Streep, announces Mr. Kramer that she's had enough. She's going to California to find herself, and, <clears throat> and that may sound odd to your listeners today, <clears throat> but that was actually a thing. Back in the 70s, people would go to California to find themselves. Um, and then you saw Mr. Kramer, play, played by Hoffman, you know, basically, you know, messing up as a dad. And when I saw that, I, it began a, what I call a slow-moving epiphany. It wasn't like a real epiphany that happens, like a, you know, flash of 
a second and suddenly realize something. But it, you know, kind of dawned on me over days and weeks that maybe it wasn't that Ron Levant was such an adequate father, but that men of my generation were simply not prepared to be the kind of hands-on parents that we were now asked to be, which was certainly true. I mean, you know, boomer men uh, growing up, I mean, in the seventh grade, when girls went to home ec, boys went to woodshop. And my parents would never consider allowing me to babysit my younger brother. Um, so, you know, I had no preparation, you know, the social expectations when I grew up in the 40s and 50s, you know, were that, uh, you know, dads would be the good provider and moms would be the homemaker. I don't know if you have ever seen some of the sitcoms of the time, like Leave it to Beaver uh, or the Nelsons. Uh, but that was the, you know, the roles portrayed. And those were the roles that, that people had. So as I thought more and more about this, I said, I turned to being an academic, I turned to the literature and said, what do we know about, uh, about preparing fathers for involved fathering role? And the answer was essentially nothing. That reviews of literature on parent training programs fail to even indicate if the groups of parents included dads. And so I concluded in a paper that parent education was, I mean, father education, I'm sorry, Parent education was synonymous with mother education and uh, decided to do something about it. So uh, an opportunity arrived where Boston University was trying to improve its uh, image with the surrounding community. It was in a lot of trouble with the surrounding community because <clears throat> of the way it handled property acquisitions and things like that. And it was kind of your town gown fights. Um, and so I was offered an opportunity to direct a, a project that was community-facing and offered services to the community as opposed to kind of courses for students. Um, and so it was called the Counseling Collaborative and it had several entities in there, one of which was the Fatherhood Project. So the Boston University Fatherhood Project was a research and service and training program where my doctoral students would kind of develop uh, dissertation projects uh, doing uh, educational programs for fathers in different categories, like single fathers, stepfathers, uh, fathers who worked in their wives' work. You know, I think there were about five or six dissertations that came out of that project. And uh, one that uh, one of my students, Greg Doyle, had come up with that I worked more closely on was called simply the fatherhood course. And we together kind of developed a course on parenting that was tailored to men. So just to give you an idea how it worked, we, um, uh, I, I was able to get a grant as part of this, this deal and also release time for five years to work on this project. So I didn't, my course load was reduced. And with the grant, I bought a huge amount of video equipment. And in the year, this was like 82, I was preparing and opened in 83. And in the, in the 80s, video equipment was one of the coolest things around. And we had one of the coolest video setups you can imagine, with, um, multiple uh, uh, cam uh, tripods, I'm sorry, multiple microphones poking out of the ceiling multiple tripods with cameras, uh, monitors, decks, special effects generators. And what we would typically do is put an announcement in uh, the public service part of the Boston Globe announcing an upcoming series of courses, and they would fill, all the courses would fill in a week, and we would start uh, uh, working with uh, dads. And so the, when the men would come into the room, they'd see all this equipment and they'd be suitably impressed. And we'd tell them that um, we're going to teach them how to be a better father uh, in the same way that they might have learned the sport, like tennis or golf. We're going to do it. We're going to videotape it. And we're gonna, then we're going to break it down 
and figure out how to do it better. And that was really appealing to them uh, back then because it was very concrete. It's kind of the way men like to approach things. And uh, this thing just took off. Uh, uh, you know, I was on Oprah Winfrey with it. I was on 2020 with Barbara Walters. Uh, People Magazine had done a multi-page spread on the program. So, you know, I got my 15 minutes of fame back then. And, but during the course of this, um, you know, I started to see some things that, uh, you know, caused me to come, become very curious about the psychology of men. Um, so, so before we sort of move on into that, I, I do want to ask, is the Boston University Fatherhood or Father Project, is that still around? Is that still something oh, no, that no, it went from... It was five years only, 1983 to 1988. And um, after it ended, I moved on to Rutgers University and um, and continued my career in the psychomedic masculinity. But no, it, 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 it ended after that period. Was there any particular reason why it ended? Or was it because you left? Or were people... Um... It was only set up to run for five years. Okay. That was the initial agreement. So with this project, it sounds like you had a lot of willing participants. What kind of men were signing up for this program or showing up? Well, uh, they weren't, this was a program for, you know, kind of um, uh, men in the community. They weren't college students or graduate students. The course was not for credit. I think we charged them $200 for whatever, I forget, it was eight or 10 week course <clears throat> that men once a week in the evenings. And they came from all walks of life, you know, from plumbers to lawyers. And they were men who uh, kind of catching the uh, ethos of the times, which was at that time, you could start to see in Harvard Square, uh, men with infants in snuggly packs and men pushing strollers. Men were starting to become visible as parents. And uh, so it was kind of a topic, you know, a contemporary topic. And, you know, uh, men were interested in it. And, you know, like, well, yeah, how do I do all this stuff? Um, And uh, so, you know, it was in that context that I kind of um, uh, opened up my uh, study more broadly I had always been interested, or for a long time, had been interested in fathering. Um, but during one of the uh, classes, a man came in. He was obviously upset. So I asked him what was going on. And he said, he told me that his son had stood him up for a father-son hockey game. That back then, being somewhat naive about men and emotions, I asked him, well, how did you feel about that, Don? His reply, he gestured, you know, strongly pointing his finger and saying, he shouldn't have done it, in an angry kind of voice. So I said, okay, well, I agree you shouldn't have done it, but Don, and I persisted, how did you feel? And he looked at me blankly said, okay, let's role play this scenario. You play yourself, Don. Tim, you play his ex-wife as she delivers the news to him that his son had forgotten about it and gone off and done something else. And we did the video, and then we played it back. And Don, you know, in the the monitor, his shoulders fell into a slump, his face into a frown, and... I'm asking him to look at himself in the monitor. We're we're freezing it at certain points so he can see it. And say, Don, look at yourself in the monitor. How did you feel? Don struggling, his hand rubbing his chin, said, Well, I guess I must have felt disappointed. I guess I must have felt disappointed. I thought to myself, I guess I must have felt disappointed with all this coaching? I wondered how a 
mother in an analogous situation like yeah. like you know uh, a, a, her daughter uh, not showing up for a shopping date. Well, at first I was surprised because it's not like her to act that way. Then I was hurt because she acted with so little regard for my feelings. And I, then I became worried that maybe she was upset with me and this is her way of telling me. And then I became disappointed and annoyed because I built my whole day around this and now it was ruined. So on the one hand, with a lot of coaching, a lot of prodding, I guess I was disappointed. On the other hand, with no coaching, no prodding, surprised, hurt, worried, disappointed, and annoyed. I said, there's something going on here. And I talked with my colleagues in the counseling psych program, and none of them were very encouraging. You know, basically they said, Ron, that's just the way men are. You know, or, and women are. Women are more emotional by nature, Ron. I didn't find that very satisfying. Now, uh, in my doctoral program, I had trained as a child clinical psychologist. And my internship was at a child guidance center. So I, I, as part of my doctoral training, I had to read a fair amount of developmental psychology literature. So I was familiar with a uh, field in developmental psychology called the emotion socialization research, which basically studies how children are socialized to express or not express certain emotions. And what I found amazed me. Shall I go into that? Absolutely. All right. So the, this is, I'll just give you the high points. I found, found about 40 or 50 studies. And, but the high points are these that uh, boys, as neonates, hours after birth, are more emotionally expressive than girls. Well, neonates, as you probably know, don't do very much. They cry or they sleep. Uh, and so boys cry more and more often uh, than do girls. But then this difference holds up at studies done at six months of age and one year of age, when obviously children do a lot more than cry and sleep, and, uh, and boys are more emotionally expressive. But a study at two years of age, again, Karen, and these studies, by the way, back then, were done uh, essentially uh, videotaping uh, family members in their home and then coding the, uh, the tapes you know, for behavioral things. Uh, very uh, time-intensive, you know, uh, studies that unfortunately are not done very much anymore. So at two years of age, we were finding that um, girls were starting to um, uh, reverse the, uh, the uh, situation and were showing greater verbal expressivity of emotions. That means, you know, I'm talking about emotions. I'm sad, I'm happy, I'm angry. Then between four and six, we see some amazing changes in a study that um, uh, videotaped the faces of mothers as their child, son or daughter, was shown an emotionally stimulating slide. And the mother was in the, an adjacent room watching her child on this monitor. And the dependent measure in the study was how accurate was the mother in identifying the slides shown to your child? What this study showed is that four years of age, mothers of boys were as accurate as mothers of girls. But as the children got older, uh, mothers became less accurate with the sons, so that by six, there were significant differences in the accuracy of mothers of sons versus mothers of daughters. And, you know, of course, what's going on in boys' lives between four and six, well, they're going to preschool and school. And what's happening in preschool and school? They're being their gender nor their gender is being policed by other boys. You know, uh, you were a boy at one point. I was. I can remember, big boys don't cry, or what are you a wuss, or even worse, that boys police other boys for violating masculinity norms particularly the norm of restrictive emotionality. 
So, um, so this led me to uh, formulate my first kind of major theory called the normative male lexithymia. Actually, I called it the hypothesis. The normative male lexithymia hypothesis, and I probably have to define that word for your listeners. Lexithymia literally means without words for emotions. A is uh, Latin for without. Lexus, not the car, is Latin for uh, words, and thymus is Latin for emotions. So um, it means without words for emotions. And I propose that because of uh, boys being reared to conform to one of the masculinity norms restrict the expression of vulnerable and caring emotions that they were more likely to have this personality trait called the lexithymia than were girls. And I stuff that when they showed that through first literature review and then a meta-analysis, which is a, a statistical aggregation of data that uh, boys or I'm sorry, men uh, meet criteria for lexithymia. Uh, more frequently than girls, the, the differences are small, but they're nonetheless persistent. So, um, just prior to starting the, there's another strand I want to bring in. Just prior to starting the Be Your Fatherhood project, I did a, um, a kind of a delayed postdoc research fellowship because I graduated in '73 and this is 1980 with a professor, uh, Joe Pleck at Wellesley College, uh, and he was at the time writing what became a landmark book called The Myth of Masculinity. And in working with him, I was able to read some of the galleys in his book. And basically, his book upended the traditional way that gender had been studied. Gender has been thought of as synonymous with biological sex prior to uh, Pleck's work. That is, that boys were expected to demonstrate masculinity, and I'll define that in a moment, and girls were expected to demonstrate femininity, and children who deviated were, in fact, thought to, uh, you know, be, have psychological trouble. And just to illustrate that latter point, there was a film uh, uh, made in the 40s uh, that I used to show in my group therapy classes uh, called Activity Group Therapy for Boys. And there were 14 boys in this uh, therapy group that was run out of a child guidance clinic. 11 were referred for effeminate behavior. So back in the 40s and 50s, effeminate behavior in boys was thought to be a major, uh, major concern, signifying psychopathology. Um, so, um, but anyway, in, in working with Dr. Fleck, I got interested in, uh, viewing masculinity as a set of social norms rather than as a biological predisposition. Uh, social norms, you know, are essentially unwritten rules for behavior. And in our society, we have a lot of social norms. We have norms for how close you stand to a person or um, holding a door open for somebody who's coming after you. And we also have norms uh, for behavior based on one's gender, and those are called gender norms. So I began working on a, uh, a scale to measure masculinity norms. Uh, when I was at Rutgers, which I mentioned I uh, went to after leaving BU, and uh, I built it on uh, a prior scale by David Brannon, which did not have very good psychometric properties. So I kind of picked up where he left off and working with a group of doctoral students created with what became known as the male role norms inventory, which over the years, decades, has gone through multiple revisions and multiple refinements and is now the latest version is called the Mellow Nose in very short form, and it specifies seven masculinity social norms. These are norms that boys are socialized to conform to from early childhood. Um, I mentioned restrict the expression of vulnerable and caring emotions. Another important norm is avoid all things feminine. 
There's also toughness, dominance, self-reliance. Uh, for older boys uh, and young men, there's the norm of um, uh, uh, putting a, a high value on sex. Another scale, not my own, calls that norm the playboy norm. Uh, I call it uh, importance of sex. And the final norm is having disdain for gay and bisexual men. So um, I developed a scale um, and began working uh, to create a focus in American psychology on men and masculinity. All right, so um, again, this was in the later 80s, you know, um, when I was at Rutgers working on this scale. Um, uh, I got together with some other colleagues uh, in the American Psychological Association. I should tell you what that is. APA is the largest uh, association of psychologists in the world with over 150,000 members and affiliates. And one of the ways that it's organized is in divisions, because psychologists do everything from work on engineering projects to provide psychotherapy. And there are a lot of different ways to be a psychologist, a lot of different specialties within psychology. And uh, uh, so I worked, and there was a division on the psychology of women. So I got together with a few colleagues, and I said, let's, let's uh, work on creating a division on the psychology of men and masculinity. And we worked on this from the late 80s and finally were approved, I believe, in 95. And we actually became a division of APA in 96. And I was the main spark plug <clears throat> making that happen, along with people like Gary Brooks um, and uh, Joe Fleck and Bill Pollock and Jeff Fisher, a whole bunch of other people, um, too numerous to name. And uh, so I, you know, this became a focus we, uh, for uh, both practice and science. This psychology of men, we now say psychology of men and masculinities. And I'll come back to that point in a minute, why do we say plural? Um, and uh, a few years after becoming a division, we started a journal, which was initially named Psychology of Men and Masculinities. Now it's named Psychology of Men and Masculinities. And it is really a scientific journal showing how this particular subspecialty really has become a scientific field in its own right. One of the things that I noticed, so you just released your new book, The Tough Standard, um, The Hard Truths About Masculinity and Violence. And I finished it last week and it was great. And so much information and a lot of seems like the culmination of a lot of years of work that you have put together and that you have done. And one of my questions is you have written many, many books and papers on masculinity and men. Uh, why now for this particular book about masculinity and violence? Well, I think because I just had it with violence. <laughs> you know, it's just, I mean, for many years, I was so frustrated to read a report of yet another mass shooting, usually a school shooting, um, or some act of sexual violence, like the Weinstein stuff, when the perpetrators were almost always boys or men, boys when it came to the shootings, obviously, yet it was never the, the 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 concept of masculinity was never brought up, and uh, at that point, you know, we were starting to accumulate. And as you, if you read the book, you you'll see how much evidence actually exists that uh, draws a connection be between uh, endorsing masculinity ideology or conforming to masculine norms. Uh, is linked to harmful outcomes, uh, a lot of it concerning things that are related to violence. Now, I should point out at the very beginning, 
that we don't have any studies directly linking masculinity to violence because for ethical reasons, you could never do a study in which actual violence occurs, okay? So we have studies linking it to aggression uh, and, uh, and also studies linking masculinity to hateful attitudes toward women, towards uh, gay and bisexual men, towards racial and ethnic minorities. So, you know, uh, so it doesn't directly, you know, connect the dot masculinity violence because you really there's just no way to do that ethically. But it does create a circumstantial case that masculinity is related to, to violence. Um, so I was really frustrated. And then I think um, I saw the reaction. Um, I don't know if you were aware a um, year or so ago that APA, the American Psychological Association, released guidelines on psychological practice with boys and men. Were you aware of that? Yes. Okay. Well, at the, at the time of that release, you know, APA, as I mentioned earlier, had guidelines for the head of division. APA had guide. APA is composed of scientists and practitioners, and then people who are both scientists and practitioners. And in keeping with kind of the ethics of the association, it periodically publishes guidelines for practice in special areas. So we have guidelines for practice with GLBTQ people, guidelines for practice with ethnic and racial minorities, guidelines for practice with older adults, guidelines for forensic practice, and on and on and on. And these guidelines have to be revised every 10 years so that they're just not carved, set in stone, and forgotten about as if, uh, as if um, the field doesn't change. The science changes all the time. So uh, I was uh, APA president in 2005. And in that role, I was able to, I, I had the opportunity to do a number of initiatives, and one of which was to set up a task force to develop a set of guidelines for practice with boys and men. Why do this? Well, psychotherapy was originally developed by men to treat women. And, um, you know, it really hadn't adapted to, uh, you know, uh, to treating men. And the research literature suggests that men are unlikely to seek psychological help when needed. Um, and uh, and when they do, they don't always do very well. And since we were conducting research and learning a great deal about masculinity and socialization, men's emotional constriction, <clears throat> you know, we thought we would, uh, I mean, there's some, some basis there to give some guidance to clinicians who treat boys and men. So it took 13 years. This is how deliberative uh, this process is. It goes through multiple layers of review, each requiring revisions. Now, just to give you a sense of that, uh, the view, review process when you publish a scientific article is typically, you know, you get one round of reviews, you get a decision, usually it's revise and resubmit, then you might get a second round of reviews or the editor might make a decision. This was 13 distinct rounds of reviews. Uh, well, I, I don't remember. So it took 13 years. There's multiple rounds of reviews. Finally got approved. And uh, then uh, that was in 18. In January of 19, the APA published an article on it in its magazine called The Monitor on Psychology and interviewed a bunch of us who were involved in it. And the Public Affairs Office of APA put out a tweet. And as you probably know, tweets strip away all context. You know, they're just a bare bones message. So while we had said in the book that traditional masculinity ideology, I'll define that in a minute, is on the whole harmful, uh, the tweet said traditional masculinity is harmful. And Immediately, 
we got a very strong reaction from the conservative press. Fox News blasted us, and they had a picture of one of our members on its website for weeks. Um, and this particular colleague was so badly harassed that he actually had to pay money to try to get his contact because he was doxxed. That is, people, you know, released his contact information. So he paid good money to try to get his name scrubbed. Um, I myself had a, a rather horrendous experience with this uh, thing. And I'm just looking something. I, I got some very freaky uh, phone calls and emails. Were, were people calling your home phone? They were calling my cell phone. Wow. Yeah. And um, so I was doxxed. I, it's really, I, I've, you've told me this story before off air and it's still always is so, I'm always taken back by it. I, I know that this happens, but every time I speak with someone who has experienced sort of this doxing and this really just negative treatment online, I just feel really, really, I feel bad and empathetic and wish we were in a society where we didn't have to, that this, this wasn't the way that people thought that they could solve problems. Um, I was speaking with someone from tribes men's group. And one of the things that he said was talking with, there are members who will be, triggered by just the phrase toxic masculinity or white privilege. And it's really important for him and his other uh, leaders to sort of question these people, these, these men and really try and find out where these thoughts are coming from uh, in order to sort of have a more peaceful resolution and Unfortunately, it doesn't sound like that was the case for you. No, I'm going to read you this email because I think it's worth people knowing about how vicious some of these people are. Bro, are you a filthy Juden, which is the German word for Jew, and a faggot or just a filthy Juden? You look to me like you're a Kevin Spacey pedophile type, but I guess according to the Jew-infested APA, just like faggotry, Pedophilia is a normal condition, unlike toxic masculinity. You filthy cocksuckers, inverting right to being wrong and wrong and disgusting to being right. Lots of exclamation points. I hope, I hope Trump declare martial law sooner rather than later, call the white men only to the National Guard, and ask us to start rounding up whiny little faggots like yourself at four in the morning in windowless vans. Is that breathtaking or what? There's a there's a lot happening in that email. There's there's a lot of homophobia, racism, sexism, anti-Semitism, and yeah, anti-Semitism, every every ism possible. Uh, and of course, I'm assuming this person did not leave their name. No, of course not. Yeah. Um, you know what's really spooky about this? This is what Trump was doing in Portland. He was sending in these uh, federal uh, agents, and they were, you know, taking people off the street and putting them in, into, I don't know if they were windowless vans or what, but they were putting them into some vehicle and taking them away. <laughs> it's, it was so eerie when I saw that happening in Portland. I said, my God, that's what that guy threatened me with. Yeah, I am sure seeing some of that footage uh definitely brought back some some weird memories uh, of receiving that email mm -hmm. absolutely now you mentioned the term toxic masculinity that was kind of one of the other bones i wanted to pick um you know psychologists don't like to use toxic on any human behavior i mean even when we're talking about psychopathology we try to talk about it in a dispassionate way 
And But the problem with this term toxic masculinity is that it's not a scientific term. The uh, uh, I just, in, in the book, I went through, and you probably saw this, I went through five or six uh, uh, news articles, media articles that used the term and noted how they defined it. And there was no, you know, consistency. Whereas we in psychology have terms like traditional masculinity ideology or conformity to masculinity norms. And, you know, as you saw when I uh, spelled out the norms, we have very uh, rigorous definitions of what, you know, that construct is. And we have, uh, I mean, one of the things psychology excels at is measurement of psychological attributes, including, you know, beliefs, that's what this is, or behaviors or personality traits. Then we have a whole quantitative set of steps that one has to go through to show that a measure uh, measures what it's supposed to be measuring. Um, but so, I, you know, toxic masculinity also is a problem because it presumes that masculinity itself isn't a problem. There's only one version of masculinity that's a problem. Uh, and that isn't actually true. We think masculinity is problematic in at least three ways. The first is that most boys are made to feel in childhood that it's obligatory, that they have no choice but to be masculine. And, you know, there's some boys that escape that, but you know, I can recall from my childhood, maybe you can from yours, you know, essentially uh, being bullied into, you know, conforming to these norms. The second problem with masculinity is 40, over 40 years of research have linked it to these harmful outcomes, many connected to the violence. And um, the third problem with it is it, it tends to be oppressive. Masculinity is originally designed to uh, perpetuate men's dominance over women. But mas you know, traditional masculinity, which is the masculinity of the dominant groups in our society, which are basically white, cisgendered, heterosexual, Christian men who have blue eyes and play at least two sports. I'm kidding about that latter part. Um, that, uh, you know, that it marginalizes, obviously, men of color. I mean, we're seeing that, you know, in the Black Lives Matter movement, racism. And one thing that's not even being considered there is masculinity and how much of a role it plays in the police violence against black men. Um, and it also uh, marginalizes, uh, you know, uh, gay and bisexual and transgender men. So masculinity itself is a problem. Does that mean that all, all you know, all men are bad? No, of course not. I mean, one of the things that, uh, you know, we, we kind of open up the book with is that while most violent crimes are committed by boys and men, the vast majority of boys and men are not violent. So then that becomes the question of how do you determine who's going to be violent? Now you get into here, you know, a huge uh, uh, set of literature about trying to predict violence. And uh, basically we've tried personality triads, we've looked at social situational factors, which tend to be better than personality measures, but the best that psychology can do in terms of predicting whether someone will be violent is the history of committing violence before, okay? Which has always seemed to me to be kind of circular and begging the question. But, and, and we haven't, as I said, directly linked masculinity to violence. We have a circumstantial case, and I should also say, you know, that even though it's 45 years of research, there are limitations in our research as there uh, is in any subfield of psychology. You know, most of our research, well, too much of our research is done with convenient samples of college students. Uh, too much of it is simply correlational. Uh, too much of it is cross-sectional. We do have some experimental studies. We do have some longitudinal studies, but those aren't the norm. So our literature, like most psychological literatures is flawed, has limitations, 
but it is what it is, and it does make a link. So, um, and that link is that uh, basically, you know, endorsing these uh, beliefs or conforming to these norms um, uh, creates the potential for violence. Who do we think? What men and boys do we think are likely to be violent? We haven't. Well, one of these we have kind of circumstantial evidence. Um, you know, let me just back up for a second. Most adult men, by the way, do not endorse or conform to traditional masculine norms. And I think there's a simple explanation for that. Masculinity is indeed hard. It's a tough standard. And most adult men who have a job and relationships, maybe a family, maybe a mortgage, are too busy to try to be masculine. And it, you know, they just say, I'm not the most masculine guy in the world, and that's okay. A minority of men feel ashamed of themselves for not meeting the masculine norms. And I don't have time to go into all that, but we think that the men who feel ashamed, of, and there is a way to test for that, um, who feel ashamed of themselves for not meeting masculine norms are candidates uh, for violence. There are also, you know, if you look at a distribution of scores on any masculinity scale what you'll, of adults, what you'll find is it's uh, heavily weighted to the low end, reflecting the fact that most men don't endorse or conform to masculinity norms. But there is an upper tail of the distribution, which is um, where uh, men who check all the boxes are. And, um, and we think that we have not been able to, there is a way that we can prove this, we just haven't done the study yet, uh, this is what we theorize, that men who check all the boxes. So one of the things that I've noticed in terms of people talking about masculinity and even using the phrase toxic masculinity is that so often the conversations are revolving around what not to be. Um, and I know we've spoken before about the Gillette commercial, which very much emphasized a lot of the behaviors of what you shouldn't be doing mm -hmm. um, without really providing an outlet of here's what you should be doing. Yeah, okay, that's um, a great question. Let me dive into that. And we do take this up in the book in Chapter 9, Solutions. Um, what, I, what I tell men, what I'd like to tell men who are listening who may, uh, you know, kind of um, – uh, be uh, imprisoned in masculinity. We use that metaphor in the book because we think of it as a prison. I tell them that, you know, to the extent that you can, try to open up your heart to your families. Try to let yourself uh, brave the shame and reveal your vulnerabilities. Uh, try to, you know, empathically listen to your family members. That means listen not only to what they're saying, but how they're feeling about it. And, you know, years ago I had a practice that was focused only on men and I developed techniques for working with men who were really alexithymic. I won't go into that now, but there are ways that one can overcome alexithymia. But I would say to kind of just normal men who are not psychologically uh, in any way impaired, uh, you know, fight against those childhood fears that it's not masculine or it's feminine to show compassion, to show empathy, to reveal your innermost feelings and, and do it. And I guarantee it will make your life better. It's just important to be a fully human being and to be able to experience and express all of your emotions. And even when it comes to crying, I mean, you know, God gave boys and girls tear ducts, right? <laughs> and we know that crying uh, relieves sadness. It feels good if you're sad and you cry. So I'm encouraging men to drop some of this traditional mas masculinity claptrap and allow themselves to uh, be who they are, to be fully emotional. Uh, you know, when appropriate, I don't mean 24-7, but, 
your uh, son is upset, you know, uh, you know, sit down and really listen to them. Let him cry. Hug him. A lot of fathers feel they shouldn't hug their sons for fear of feminizing them. I think that's ridiculous. Uh, boys, we all, all human beings, um, uh, we've even seen primates, primates in the Harley, Harlow studies that all human beings need, you know, physical contact. That's one of the things that I think is causing a lot of people to suffer in the pandemic is the lack of physical contact with other other people. So, yeah, that's my that's my word of advice to dads. It's really incredible. In my brief time of research, and I obviously have not been researching as long as you have, um, but it seems like one of the big issues that is actionable that can be solved is really vulnerability and communication. I would agree. And I think that based on all of the research that, that you shared that, that is out there on, I've been spending a lot of time looking at male loneliness and a lot of it is tied to just men being not, not willing to, uh, kind of show that emotional courage to, to open up to their friends, to try and build deeper relationships. And there is, you know, there's all of those dominoes that fall just because of the difficulty in doing that for, for a lot of men. Yeah. They're, they're, um, they're feeling that they're violating the masculinity norms and, and the shame that they experience with that. Um, yeah, you mentioned loneliness. Shankar Vendatam on the Hidden Brain did a uh, a show on men's loneliness. Did you happen to catch that? I have not. No, it was excellent. But yeah, I mean, men are uh, more lonely than women in the U.S. Uh, for sure, and and it's not because they're not in contact with people; it's because they're unable or unwilling to be in close contact. I had a client. Uh, who uh, told me the only way he could feel close to his wife was, uh, actually, I've had several male clients tell me this, but I'm thinking of one in particular, um, that the only way he feel, could feel close to his wife was during the act of sex. He could not imagine feeling close to a conversation. You know, and, and yet that's how... Most of us connect with other people um, that we're close to, friends and family members. And uh, as a psychologist with a client, for example, uh, it's through conversation we connect emotionally. So uh, it is a huge problem. And I appreciate that you're doing this show and encouraging you know, men to open up to fight against that ingrained shame that many men feel when they uh, start to do something that seems feminine, like finding, like being compassionate, or being even self-compassionate, that is, compassionate to yourself. Yeah. Um... And before we go, uh, sort of one last thing that I want to touch on is one thing that I noticed while going through your book and listening to you today is that a lot of these sort of issues with masculinity have been around for a really long time and the information has been out there. Um, And I can also say, you know, anecdotally, and it may just be because of the people that I surround myself with or the person that I am um, that I've noticed that it is easier for my younger male friends around my age in our, in our thirties um, to be emotionally vulnerable, to, to have real conversations. Um, but I'm also, I'm also noticing there's this sort of fine line for a lot of them where they'll, I'll, 
you know, we'll have a really good in-depth emotional conversation. And after a certain point, like that wall comes up and they need to make a joke or they need to, you know, go back, back into your masculine shell. Um, have you noticed any difference in terms of like over the course of your study? Um, if different, these younger generations of men are being more vulnerable than previous generations, or is it kind of just this steady sort of straight line? One of my students is uh, doing a <clears throat> a new scale for millennial men. Uh, it's not done yet, so we don't have the data, but um, we do we do have evidence that masculinity norms have changed from when I was a boy to now in a couple of ways. The first. Uh, is the uh, norm to uh, have disdain for sexual minority men. And on this, you know, our entire society has changed. It is no longer um, acceptable uh, in most uh, quarters to uh, stigmatize uh, GLBTQ folks. I mean, um, you know, mo most, most Americans recognize that <clears throat> this is normal human variation that is not a sign of psychopathology if someone is gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender or what have you. That has changed a lot. The other area that seems to have changed, certainly from when I was a young man, is fathering. Um, in, uh, and I, I you know, feel that I had played a role in some of that earlier on in the 80s. Um, and working with people like uh, Joe Pleck and Michael Lamb, who did a lot more than I did to pursue the notion of the involved father. But I've long advocated that um, that men, uh, you know, be full parents, uh, full partners with their wives in parenting, uh, that they, you know, get up in the morning and let's say they have the morning shift, they get the children dressed and fed and off to daycare or school, or they take the evening shift and they pick up the kids and bring them home and get them settled in their homework or evening routines while they make dinner. You know, that, that this, that there's nothing unique about fathering contrary to some theories that existed in the field that are largely ignored. Now, uh, one of them called the essential father hypothesis that claimed that the father's essential role was to ensure his son's heterosexuality and masculinity. That's largely been debunked. I think, you know, uh, parenting is really what's called for. That's what's needed, especially since so many women work now as compared to when I grew up, my mother was a full-time homemaker. That's the way it was. June Cleaver, you know, um, that kind of scenario. Now, you know, so many women work that if the um, if the men in the in the family don't pick up some of the childcare and housework slack, it's going to be a bad deal. Um, the other thing I want to go back to this essential father hypothesis, even though it, that has been debunked in academia, the research indicates that many fathers behave as as if it is true. That is, they tend to socialize their boys to be masculine. Now, given what we've been talking about, about how, how masculinity is linked to violence, as well as a lot of harmful uh, outcomes like uh, health problems for men that we haven't gone into, I uh, strongly encourage parents not to raise their sons to be masculine. Uh, just to give you an idea, take any masculine trait, like let's say aggressive. Any, any psychological trait, you can measure a thousand people, you can plot the scores on a graph, you'll see a distribution, often a bell-shaped distribution, but sometimes skewed to the high end or the low end. And um, uh, so when you have a, a son who is very sweet, not at all aggressive, and you force that boy to be masculine, uh, aggressive, Think about the harm that you're doing to his personality. You know, you're, you're forcing him to be someone he's not. And we have a meme in Western civilization, going back to the Greeks, 
to thine own self be true, to be that self that one truly is, or I like Oscar Wilde's version, be yourself, everybody else is taken. You know, when you're forcing a boy to not be himself, to be aggressive when he's not, to uh, be restrict his emotions when he happens to be very emotional, you were doing a lot of harm to his personality. And uh, so I, I would encourage parents to think about that. I want to thank you so much for, for coming on today. I, I, I could listen to you and I know we have just barely touched the surface of all of these conversations. I highly encourage all of our listeners to listen or to pick up a copy of the tough standard. It's fantastic. There is a ton of great research and information and hopefully, hopefully there's some information in there that will be really beneficial for all male readers and, and female readers for just readers in general. So thank you again, Ron. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Garrett. I would also, uh, people want more information about our book, we have a website for the book. It's the tough standard, one word.com. Thank you for having me on the show. Again, I just want to give a huge thank you to Dr. Ronald Levant for sitting down to chat with me today. And before you go, I want to mention one more time that signups for the Doodle Alliance are open. If you're committed to crushing loneliness, it's time to make that change today. As Tony Robbins says, breakthroughs happen in an instance. So sign up today. Discover who you are. Craft who you'll become. Have a good night.